0: Welcome to Shorty's A short True Crime Story.
1: Happy Wednesday, baby. Happy Wednesday. My darling. <laughs> my sweet, sweet darling. I heard you have a, a a long episode for the day. so I got like kind of like a little break. <laughs> getting this. We're not doing that. <laughs> what are you talking about? You have to Wait, do a story. You told me in the kitchen that you're doing no, that's is for so next long. week. And then you said all of the things that we're doing this week are for next week. I know, but the one I was referencing
0: was for the following one. Oh. <laughs> so you came without a story. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I will just do a uh series of jokes. This will be me testing out my abilities as a stand-up comedian. Well, uh This just, um, this sucks. (laughs) This is like... When you're in class, and then the person next to you is like, "Did you study for the test?" And you're like, "What test?" <laughs> that face- that just gave me those vibes. Well, then,
0: yeah, that's what your face looked like. It was just like, "Is this a bit? Are you making a joke?" Are you? Oh yeah, no, I, I like, thought you were being me- silly.
1: I'm like, "Stop being such a silly goose, Ashley," well, about this topic. And
0: I had also mentioned that this my half of this episode is pretty short, and so I thought you were being sarcastic. And I was like, "And then but you look so serious, so scared." <laughs> Yeah no so uh, let's just record this now and then oh. we'll we'll just uh, give you figure, some, out, the we'll figure out the rest we'll figure out the rest give you some time to write a story
1: you are and such and a good back. good friend to me a good 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 friend
0: oh I'm so sorry I'll make it up to you <laughs> <laughs> panic so I am doing the story of the Lindbergh baby okay okay so it's March first 1932 it's about 10 p.m. in Hopewell New Jersey. Anne Murrow has just gotten out of the bath and she crosses paths with Betty Gow. Betty was a live-in nanny for Anne's 20-month-old son, Charles Jr. Betty had gone to check on the baby in his crib, but when she found that he wasn't there, she assumed his mother had taken him to the bath with her. But then later when the two women cross paths and they realize that neither of them has the baby, all hell breaks loose. Anne and her husband, the famed aviator Charles Lindbergh, had recently moved into a beautiful estate on a 340-acre property. What do you
1: need all that for?
0: I mean, uh, (laughs) so they intended to raise their family there. Charles Jr. was their first and only child in the light of their lives, but they did intend to have more, so they wanted like a lot of space, I guess. When Charles Sr. learned his son was missing, he immediately grabbed a gun and he and the butler searched all over the house and the grounds. They found a broken ladder leaning against the baby's second-story window, but it was like an unusually long ladder that seemed as though someone had taken two different ladders and then tried to, like, merge them into one large one. They also find a baby blanket and a trail of muddy shoe prints. And then back inside the nursery, they found more muddy shoe prints in an envelope on the windowsill that contained a ransom note. The kidnappers wrote in barely legible writing, and the grammar was, like, unlike anything I've ever read <laughs> okay
1: okay it's so not not like the chicken scratch shield cereal, cereal curler no writing?
0: I mean it, it was like the handwriting was horrific too but like it was it, like all of it I'm gonna read I'm gonna read it the way I know they meant it but I'm gonna okay. post the story on Instagram because it's like or, or this the yeah. I'll, I'll post the picture because of it's like, I was like is this bad because you you're a Virgo
1: like is this bad bad oh, or is this like Ashley no, Virgo no, no. what are you thinking about oh no no
0: no it's, okay. it, this isn't me this is, um, this is not, everyone. not for me. So the ransom note said, quote, Dear sir, have $50,000 ready, 25000 in $20 bills, 15000 in $10 bills, and 10000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or for notifying the police. The child is in good care. Indication for all letters are signature and three holes. And so the last part, it is in reference to this very weird drawing that the kidnapper is trying to use as his signature. It's a circle with some half circles and then some dots and some holes in the paper. He's just trying to say, like, any notes I send going forward will have this unique drawing as my signature. That way, the Lindberghs will know it's really the person who has their kid. Authorities are promptly called, but police don't really find anything beyond what Charles and the butler had already found. The kidnappers had worn gloves, so there were no fingerprints anywhere in the room or on the windowsill or on the ladder. They found the baby's fingerprints on the windowsill, but that was it. Even the adults in the home, like the nanny, uh, both the baby's parents and the butler, they all admitted to to police that they had touched the windowsill when they learned he was gone, yet none of their fingerprints showed up. So it was later wiped. But the babies were there. So that's what's confusing about it. It's very strange. The shoe prints were of no use because it seemed that the kidnappers had put some type of a cloth on to cover the bottom of the shoe. So police couldn't identify the size or the shape or the design or anything like that. As soon as word gets out about this kidnapping and ransom, this explodes into the biggest story in the country, if not the world. Because five years earlier, Charles Lindbergh Sr. was the first person to complete a solo flight across the Atlantic Ocean. He was now one of the most famous people in the world and incredibly wealthy. He had a reported net worth of 20 million dollars, which is like 300 million today. Yeah. A few years later, I I had just I'm just throwing this in because I found it interesting. A few years later when Amelia Earhart came on the scene, she was commonly referred to as Lady Lindy. And I didn't realize until I was researching this story it's because she's like she was trying to be the female version of Charles Lindbergh. Oh, okay. Yeah. So anyways, As devastating as this kidnapping is, you can understand the dangers that come with their wealth and notoriety, and it's easy to see why the Lindberghs were targeted Targeted. like this. But the couple decides to pay the $50,000 ransom, and then all they received in return was another ransom note, this time demanding $70,000. Everyone from the CIA, the FBI, and even President Hoover reached out to the Lindberghs to offer any support and help they may need. Even organized crime figures like Al Capone offered to help. They're like, you know, I'm messed up, but this
1: is really messed up. (laughs) Well,
0: granted, he was willing to offer his help in exchange for his release from prison, and he wanted a whole bunch of like political favors and such. Came with a price then. Yeah, so authorities turned that offer down. Yeah, it wasn't like a (laughs) good-hearted offer. Yeah, no, no. But because of the fame and the wealth involved, hundreds of people converged onto the Lindbergh's property, effectively destroying any potential physical evidence. Some people had good intentions and wanted to help, while other people were just loony shitsters who wanted to insert themselves in a high profile crime story. So, authorities, as well as the Lindberghs, begin receiving an overwhelming amount of letters from random people all over the world, which really confused the investigation because people were giving like false confessions and providing their own versions of a ransom note. It will never not be weird to me. <laughs> I know, but, but none of them were credible given that they didn't provide that unique signature. Authorities comb through every piece of evidence and they come to the conclusion that the kidnapper is likely a German immigrant. How they came up with that, I have no idea. But the police don't believe that the kidnapper knew the Lindberghs personally. They do believe that he had likely been watching them and planning this for some time. And whether he was acting alone or working with others was uh, unclear. Over the course of the next two months, Anne and Charles lived in agony. The kidnappers continually sent new ransom notes and after each payment was made, the baby wasn't handed over. The kidnapper continually insisted the baby was safe and in the care of two innocent women. And to prove it, the kidnapper would do things like they would he would hand over the baby's sleep sack or his thumb guard as proof that he was alive and in the kidnapper's care. But I was like, that doesn't prove the baby's alive. It just proved that they were dealing with the person who had their kid. But obviously the Lindberghs need to cling to any hope that their son was safe. Of course, yeah. But tragically, on May 12th, 72 days after the kidnapping, the lifeless body of 20-month-old Charles Lindbergh Jr. is found.
1: Oh my god, I, I, I didn't I didn't see that coming, honestly. I thought this would be not, not that story. You don't know this story? No, I don't. Oh. Yeah, Oh, well, I, I had hope too. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I, mean, I mean, don't say sorry to me. Oh, uh, well, yeah.
0: A truck driver named Orville Wilson pulled off to the side of the road to relieve himself in the bushes, and after walking a little ways into a wooded area off the main road, he saw the baby's body. They were only four and a half miles from the Lindbergh's home. That makes you want to literally throw up. Yeah. After investigating, (sighs) authorities determined that Charles Jr. had been killed by a blow to the head, and it likely happened the very night he was kidnapped. (sighs)
1: So I think it's a bit like even thinking about the fingerprints of a baby on the windowsill like I haven't been able to stop thinking about that just like how cute and small they are I and know. just having that baby in your arms And like all you want to do instinct wise is do anything to protect that baby like I could be handed a baby at the grocery store that I've never even met and I would do anything to keep mm-hmm. that child alive yep so to have that power and then I know
0: Whether it was intentional or accidental was unclear. But what they knew for sure is that his body had been missed during all of the searching around the Lindbergh's home. And granted, they live on a 340 acre property. So I don't even know how it's possible to thoroughly search that type of land. But given how close his body was found to the house, it just, it was extra painful that no one found him sooner.
1: And just like sleeping in your home and like knowing that your, your sweet baby's little body is like so close. is just another layer of like torture. Yeah to them yeah. it's it's horrific police still had no definitive leads but this
0: case was so high profile I, I, there was no way that they could ever label it a cold case with every branch of the government including the president himself behind the Lindberghs it seemed like they were going to arrest and charge someone with this kidnapping and murder even if they weren't certain that they had the right person a month after the discovery of the body police began to suspect that the kidnapper was actually someone the Lindberghs knew and they zero in on a woman named Violet Sharp. Violet was from England, and she had been working as a maid for the Lindberghs at the time of the kidnapping. Apparently, she was very nervous and acting very suspicious when questioned by police, and she gave contradictory information regarding her whereabouts the night of the kidnapping. Apparently, Violet learned the police had a renewed interest in her whereabouts, and on June 10th, roughly a month after the baby was found, Violet committed suicide by ingesting a polishing agent that contained cyanide. And then after her death, police verified that she was innocent, but they were really criticized because she had been so aggressively questioned that many people believed that she kind of had the same consensus that I just said that like, they're definitely going to put this on someone and it doesn't matter. It doesn't seem to matter if it's really them or not. And so they think that she was just so fragile and then just felt so, you know, scrutinized vulnerable at at their mercy Mm -hmm. that she took her own life. It's awful. After this, the case goes cold for almost a year until they get a lead on the ransom money that the Lindbergs had paid. They had made the ransom payments using mostly gold certificates, which was a form of currency that the government had withdrawn from circulation just before the baby was taken. The police had instructed them to do this because they felt that it would like make tracking the money easier because so few people had gold certificates to begin with. So if they waited, they would likely be able to track down the kidnapper once he tried spending like a big chunk of the money. Mm -hmm. And this plan like sort of worked because authorities had kept a log of every serial number attached to the ransom bills. And then they released 250,000 pamphlets to businesses around New York City that listed all of those serial numbers. That way the public could help by reporting any ransom bills that crossed their paths authorities managed to track down several of the bills but they were all being spent in like random places and only like one or two at a time so it, it wasn't it looked it was like someone had down. like just kind of dispersed a little bit yeah but by presidential order all gold certificates were supposed to be exchanged for different currency by may 1st 1933. And a few days before the deadline a man exchanged almost three thousand dollars worth of gold certificates but it was only afterwards that the bank realized all of the certificates were from the ransom. And by then the man was long gone and authorities could not track him down because they think that he used a fake name. A year later in September of 1934, a gas station attendant notified police after a suspicious acting man paid for some items using some of the ransom bills. Even though it had been a few years, this case was still huge. Which I mean, I'm probably because it was still unsolved, you of know. Of course. And the authorities distributing all of those serial numbers to businesses really made the public feel like they were part of the investigation team, like the, everyone was an armchair expert. Yeah. yeah, like we need you. Yeah. So, anyways, authorities tracked down this suspicious acting man from the gas station. His name was Richard Hauptman. Hauptman? Hauptman? How's it spelled? H A U P T M A N. Hauptman? Hauptman. H-A-U-P-T-M-A-N. H-A-U-P-T-M-A-N. Anyways, he was currently living in the Bronx, but he was a German immigrant who had a criminal record back in Germany. After searching his home, police find that he had $14,000 in the ransom bills. They also find a notebook containing sketches of, of what looks like someone trying to merge two ladders into one really big ladder, similar to the one they found at, outside the baby's oh, nursery. Yeah. They also find a note containing the name John Condon with John's phone number and home address listed. John Condon was a friend of the Lindberghs and he had actually operated as the middleman who delivered the ransom payments. So nobody knew that except the Lindberghs and the authorities and their friend John. They also find a chunk of wood in the attic of Richard's home that matched all of the wood used to merge the two ladders together. So police arrested Richard and then beat him several times during interrogations. But he insisted that he had had no knowledge of the kidnapping or involvement in the kidnapping. He insisted that the money belonged to a friend of his who had recently passed away. Mm -hmm. Richard insisted that his friend had owed him money and he had left a bunch of his personal items in his home. And so then after his friend died because his friend got ill, he like went through his friend's boxes. And when he found the money, he said that he didn't know that it was related to the kidnapping and he took it as... Don't mind if I do. <laughs> sort of, yeah, because his friend didn't have, didn't leave anybody behind, and he had owed him thousands of dollars from like a, a like some type of a business okay. deal. So he, he didn't was feel just, bad taking it. He didn't feel bad, yeah, and he he says that he had no idea that there was anything connected, like to sinister, that. connected to it, yeah. Whether or not anything he says is true will forever be a mystery, and because of the notoriety of this case, police go full steam ahead in parading him around, patting themselves on the back for finally solving this case, and he was charged with the murder of Charles Jr., and he was also charged with extorting money from Charles Sr. The murder trial was referred to as the trial of the century, and every hotel room in the area was booked up, and the courtroom was packed with a mix of spectators and reporters, Richard was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death, but he appealed soon after the conviction. The trial and the conviction had been heavily criticized by the public and several elected officials because most of the prosecutor's argument was based on circumstantial evidence and the idea that anyone could be involved in this case and Mm -hmm. be unbiased given that it was such a massive thing. I mean, that's just crazy. So you know that everybody in there is biased in some capacity. There were no eyewitnesses placing Richard anywhere near the Lindbergh's home in the days surrounding the kidnapping, and the evidence found in his home couldn't be proven to really belong to him, or be what they thought it was, you know? Many people believe that police planted evidence or tampered with witnesses. Plus, this entire crime had to have involved at least two people, if not more, yet the police were content to close this case after richard's conviction they were just like nope it's fine
1: it's just one person law enforcement not doing a good job at a crime scene I know, it's unheard of <laughs> crazy.
0: richard's appeal was denied and on april 3rd 1936 he was electrocuted according to wikipedia authorities went to him with a last minute offer to commute his sentence in exchange for a full confession but richard declined he maintained his innocence up to the moment that he died Twice in the 1980s, Richard's wife, Anna, sued the state of New Jersey for the unjust execution of her husband, both times losing. But she continued to defend him and worked to clear his name until her death in 1994 at the age of 95. Despite the tragedy that they endured with their firstborn, Anne and Charles go on to have five more children, three of whom are still alive today. They remain married until Charles Sr.'s death in 1974, but after he died, it came out that during his marriage to Anne, he had fathered seven children with three women in Europe. Two of those women were sisters. Isn't that disgusting? Two sisters getting knocked up by the same dude. So the kids are dudes? like cousin siblings. Yeah. Sick of these dudes. I'm sick I'm of the- these
1: dudes. Well, I guess the chicks are, you know, whatever, culpable well, too. but whatever. Yeah.
0: Uh, So, anyways, there are nothing but conspiracy theories out there around this case. Some people believe that Charles Jr. may have had developmental issues and that Charles Sr. had killed him and staged this kidnapping to cover it up. Other people believe that perhaps Charles Sr. was trying to play a prank on his wife by staging a kidnapping and that he accidentally dropped the baby coming down the ladder and killed him. No. Then pretended that the prank was like a real kidnapping. Some people believe that kidnapping was at the hands of the mafia, which would explain why Al Capone would volunteer his help, yes. you know, because if authorities had accepted his help and the conditions that came with it, he would have gained his freedom and favors with high ranking officials and the Lindberghs would get their baby back. And I don't know what I believe, but this case was and will probably always be fascinating because I don't think we'll ever truly know if the culprit Can't. was caught. Yeah. And that is the story
1: of the Lindbergh baby devil's advocate if he didn't kill the child can you imagine this guy being like this guy owed me money i took this money i know if anything like get mad at me for being greedy or like an illegal like transfer of funds like and then you get executed and that that just which is like kind of like a weird karma thing in my head it's kind of like when you um find money on the ground and you know that you just saw the person that dropped it Mm -hmm. and then you don't return it to the person and then that money whatever you buy or whatever you do money it's dirty money and i firmly believe in that so, yeah, I know that's some weird karma. I don't know. I know,
0: I, I, know. I, I know. So, uh, we're in a bit of a pickle here. Do we want to just stop recording I was and hoping you forgot and let you go <laughs> write a story, and we can uh, just uh,
1: you want to want to record, record this evening? Sure, it's gonna be the 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 best thing, <laughs> the best shorty, real shorty you've ever heard in your life. Forgive me, love me. Oh, I do. I, I forgive you and I love you. Awesome. So
0: we'll be back in um, a few the, hours for the listener. We'll be back in 30 seconds. Ash and I will be
1: revisiting this table and uh, let's, I give myself four hours. <laughs> okay. Okay, we've returned.
0: Yeah, and a few hours later, and
1: we're back. You've done this in record
0: time. You did it faster than I thought you would. I hope so. it's quality. I hope it's quality. I mean, who really the, knows, the, though, man? <laughs> yeah. The speed
1: in which you threw it together—it just—we're all in for a surprise. Yeah, it's, it was pretty reckless of me. Um, but some of my favorite, uh, like, papers in college were ones that I procrastinated on. So, well, I mean, that's how it goes. So that's—it's a very uh, true Taurus thing. Yeah. So. There's we been a go. couple of times where I had to like quickly
0: throw a story together for this podcast. And I was like, that is not how I operate. I need a lot of time to feel confident in whatever it is that I've done. And then they ended up being great ones. So I have a weird
1: amount of confidence about things that I shouldn't. So <laughs> here she is. <laughs> here she is. I am going to be covering the story of Sydney Loof. Okay. On November 19th, 2017, 24 year old Sydney Loof left work at a local menard store in Lincoln, Nebraska. Menards is like a home improvement store, like a Home Depot or Lowe's. I think it's pronounced Maynard. Well, <laughs> I like how I'm like telling you what it is and I don't know how you pronounce it. And you know.
0: <laughs> I think it's called Maynard's. Maynard's. But I don't But I could be making that up because even as I was saying that, I was like, I feel like this is. A thing that Anna does, where she says it with complete confidence, because mm-hmm. she's always read that name in that way in her mind. Therefore, so everyone's real. So I don't actually <laughs> so it's know. Real.
1: <laughs> <laughs> My fantasy is everyone else's reality. It's okay. So it's just a hardware. It's a hardware store, right? Give or take tomato, tomato. Yeah. Sydney had just gone on a first date with a woman named Audrey the night before. It was pretty low key and just consisted of hanging out in Audrey's apartment basement. But it went well, and they wanted to see each other again the next night. When she had gotten home from the first date, she texted her friend Tara and talked about how great it went and that she was so excited to see her again.
0: I love those. I
1: know, she was just like, it, it was one of those things where they they, they matched on Tinder, immediately uh, you know, decided to meet up, went well, and they're like, why not just do it again the next night? Yeah. As she was leaving work, Sydney posted a picture on her Snapchat with the caption, ready for my date, and then headed over to Audrey's house. At 8.32 p.m., her phone was shut off, and Sydney Loof was never seen alive again. The following day, Sydney didn't show up for work. Sydney was a very dependable and responsible woman, so her coworkers were immediately really worried. Her mother, Susie, texted her and never got a text back. Even though it only been a day, Susie didn't hesitate to report her daughter missing. There's some people that talk to their parents once every two weeks, so this wouldn't be concerning behavior to like not hear from your kid overnight. Sure. but. I was like, I text my mom every morning and every night without fail. So if I miss those texts, my mom would know something was super wrong. Oh, yeah. And it sounds like Sydney and her mom had a very like a very similar dynamic. Totally.
0: Yeah, you talk to your mom all the time. Yeah. I live with you and I think your mom would notice if you went missing before I did. <laughs> oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And like if I don't and I'm just one of those people that if I'm not gonna have my phone or be on my phone and I know that for like a long period of time. I always shoot over a text beforehand because I don't want anyone to worry. I'm like so available that it's weird if I'm not.
0: Yeah, you do do that, which is really nice. Even when you're just like, oh, I'm going to dinner with so-and-so. I just want to be present. So I'm not going to be on my phone. Like you, you do make it a point to do that. I've never really noticed it, but that's very thoughtful. of I just
1: never want anyone to be concerned. (laughs) I'm so precious (laughs) to so many. Well, you are. (laughs) I'm kidding. The police went by her apartment to do a welfare check, but there was no sign that she had been home recently. There was also no sign of a break-in or altercation of any kind. Next, they decided to take a look at her activity online. The last thing that she had posted was the selfie with the caption, ready for my date. Her cell phone data showed that her phone last pinged approximately 40 miles south in a very small town called Wilbur. Sydney's friend Brooklyn McChrystal was one of many friends that heard all about her upcoming date when no one could get a hold of Sydney her gut told her to look into the woman from the Tinder date she picked up her phone and started swiping through the profiles on Tinder when she came across a woman named Audrey she swiped right then she sent her a message when Audrey responded with her cell phone number Brooklyn gave that number to the police
0: damn
1: and that's good Good thinking good thinking
0: and I, I was gonna say, I, but I think it's just because I like live in such a huge city in Los Angeles. I was like, the chances of you picking up that same app and swiping through to the same person is know. crazy, but I guess-
1: It's a small town in
0: Nebraska. Yeah, it's a little bit easier.
1: <laughs> the overwhelming smell of bleach was hard to ignore at Audrey's apartment. The odor emanating from the basement was so strong that other people in the apartment building began to throw up and get hives. The owner of the building thought it was peculiar that Audrey was running the AC in November in Nebraska. Yeah. Only two days later, authorities were able to find the duplex that Audrey called home in Wilbur. 23-year-old Bailey Boswell had been pretending to be a woman named Audrey on Tinder. She lived with her 51-year-old boyfriend named Audrey. Wait, her boyfriend's name is Audrey? Yes, Audrey Trail.
0: (laughs) I've never heard that name used for a guy. I can't
1: tell you how confusing all of this was for me with all the names. Especially
0: because <laughs> Bailey can be a boy. Recording.
1: Yes. And then Bailey was pretending to be Audrey and then Audrey, it's just, it was yeah. too much for my little brain to do in a few hours. Yeah. <laughs> the duo had an extensive criminal record, everything from writing bad checks to theft to various scams, but never anything violent. By November 28th, Bailey Boswell and her boyfriend, Audrey trail were considered to be persons of interest even though they both denied having any involvement. Bailey Boswell had a rough go of it from an early age. Her father was murdered when she was very young. When Bailey's mother remarried a man named Freddie Parnell, she was exposed to physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. Even though she was a gifted athlete and was eventually offered a scholarship to play college basketball, she turned to substance abuse. According to her mother, Bailey moved to Princeton, Iowa for a fresh start, but was unsuccessful. She then found her now boyfriend Audrey on a sex worker website called Backpage when she was looking for a sugar daddy. where all romances. <laughs> Bloom. Flourish. Audrey also had a tough upbringing. He was abused by his parents since the age of two and eventually had to move in with his grandfather. Eventually, he had to move back in with his parents where he was once again abused by his stepfather. He moved from one foster home to the other and eventually from one juvenile detention center to another he went to prison as a teenager for armed robbery. When police searched Bailey and Audrey's apartment, they didn't find anything completely out of the ordinary, except for the overwhelming smell of bleach.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, except (laughs) except for the one thing. They can't breathe.
1: (laughs) And then they also noticed that the walls of one room had been meticulously scrubbed clean while the rest of the apartment was filthy. A few items alarmed authorities like duct tape, a sauna suit with the crotch cut out, what Uh, what (laughs) a book of anatomy and a dog leash and even though all these things might ring alarm bells there's technically nothing criminal about owning any of those items yeah i was gonna say all of them separately it's probably
0: uh, apart from the crotchless suit suit everything else is probably found
1: (laughs) within most people's homes the thing is is like they had a dog leash and a collar but they don't know a dog but you know what kinks are kinks and that's life and we don't kink shame you know whatever Amidst all the scrutiny, Bailey and Audrey couldn't keep their mouths shut. They started posting videos on social media wearing all black and oversized sunglasses, telling their side of the story. Bailey said that yes, she smoked pot and did some other drugs with Sydney on a date, but that she dropped her off at a friend's house after. Audrey stated that he's a thief, but not a murderer, and they're complying and not hiding or running off. Bailey's cell phone data implied otherwise. Data towers revealed that on the day Sydney went missing, Bailey had driven around 200 miles on numerous dirt roads in Clay County, Nebraska. Investigators decided to follow her digital tracks. On December 4th, just a couple weeks after Sydney went missing, a horrifying discovery was made multiple 30 gallon black trash bags were found along a gravel road. The bags were wrapped around body parts, clothing, and sex toys. In a ditch along the dirt road was a human arm sticking out of one of the bags. There were 13 garbage bags in total, and they were dumped along the rural roads that Bailey's phone had been driving on November 16th. The remains were immediately identified as Sydney's because of the very distinct tattoos that she had on her body. Three months later, Sydney's bra and shirt that were seen in her last Snapchat story were found. However, her internal organs and the upper left arm were never found. The official autopsy report revealed that Sydney's cause of death was suffocation and the bruising on her body indicated that she had fought for her life. After Sydney's remains were found, Audrey immediately confessed, but his version of events changed multiple times. First, he confessed to killing Sydney on his own and that he would like to be executed for his crime. His next confession was that Sydney actually died after going on a third date with Bailey on November 16th, that the three of them had had a threesome, and when he choked Sydney, she was killed by accident. His next confession stated that there was no threesome that took place, but that he did accidentally choke Sydney to death. The final version of the story was Sydney had agreed to a threesome with Audrey and two other women while Bailey was passed out from drugs in the other room. Audrey went on to tell the FBI that he made videos of different types of kinks for money and he would use that money to pay the women that were participating in the kinks. He claimed that he recorded Sydney consenting to being choked, but that the tape was never found. The woman supposedly paid him $15,000 to film this video. She was accidentally strangled when an extension cord was put around her neck, but then it got, in quotes, out of hand.
0: You're saying the woman as in
1: Yeah, there, he's his story changes like five or six times and his like the final one that he landed on was that he did have a threesome but that his girlfriend wasn't involved and that it occurred with two women that paid him to be in this like sexual kink video one of them with her being, one of them being the, No, there was two separate women that are not named oh, I that see. he claims paid him and Sydney to do this choking video, it's just it's so outlandish yeah. so that you can't even keep up with yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Afterwards, he panicked and chopped up her body so that he could hide her remains and not get caught. Through it all, he was adamant that Bailey was not involved in killing Sydney, but simply helped get rid of her body. Bailey backed up this version of events and said that yes, she had fallen asleep in the living room while Sydney, Audrey, and two other women engaged in group sex in their bedroom. The evidence found at the apartment proved otherwise. There was no sign that anyone other than Sydney, Bailey and Audrey had been there at the time of her murder. Text exchanges also never mentioned Audrey at any point. In fact, Sydney had asked multiple times if anyone else would be there, to which Bailey always said, no. Their story completely crumbled when surveillance footage surfaced. Surveillance cameras recorded Bailey and Audrey checking into a Best Western Hotel on November 14th at 4 p.m. The next morning, they bought a weeder, food grinders, and a folding saw. Ew. I know.
0: Yes. Oh my gosh, that just gave me like I know like painful chills down my spine.
1: Like the throw up sensation like, in your yeah. throat. That's what I keep getting.
0: My, my entire being just, just reacted to this <laughs> so badly.
1: After leaving the store, their cell phone data showed that both of them were waiting right by Sydney's home and then followed her to work. Security footage showed Audrey walking into Maynard's at 12 p.m., When Sidney walked right by him, he looked over his shoulder at her. While Audrey was still inside her place of work, he bought Drano, lighters, protein bars, an air freshener, and then cotton cord, just like that cotton, that that skinny, you know, cotton string. After purchasing these items, the couple headed to a Home Depot. Footage shows them buying a utility knife with extra blades, a foot-long hacksaw, wire snips, and drop cloths. And drop cloths are used to protect surfaces like when you're painting a house. Yeah. They're like tarps, but yeah, made like of tarps. canvas. Hours before Sydney and Bailey's second date, Audrey and Bailey are seen buying Clorox bleach, 30 gallon trash bags, and a tree saw from another store. Okay, wait. They're <laughs> literally at, they had to have every single cutting item on this, the market.
0: Yeah, this is like an extensive shopping list. This is like, I, I get,
1: don't understand. And these idiots thought that like if they went to different locations, they wouldn't be tracked, but they just like completely forgot about the fact that there's surveillance footage in all of these stores. Oh my gosh. It's 2017. Especially
0: (laughs) in hardware stores. I mean, every inch of those places is covered because they have just such a extensive, expensive array of Mm -hmm. items that go up into thousands and thousands. I I just- They're idiots. They're so stupid.
1: Authorities were never able to locate any of the cutting tools during their searches. Whoa. I know. However, many items were left behind that they could use to find DNA. Okay. Like handcuffs, a dog collar and leash, rope and other sex toys that were found in the trash bags with her body. Yeah. But none of them had Bailey's DNA on them. However, they were able to find Bailey's DNA on one pair of plastic gloves. During the trial, three women testified and described their experience being members of Audrey's cult. The women all stated that Audrey claimed to be a vampire with supernatural powers and that they were now considered witches that belonged to his cult. Oh my God. I know. I did not realize this was going to turn into a cult story. It turns into everything, really. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I didn't expect
1: that. They give you one of each. The women also stated that Audrey was convinced that they all needed to torture and kill someone so that they could gain more supernatural powers like flying and reading minds. He claimed that he could already do those things, but he wanted more. He told them that if they sold the footage, they can make a million dollars and then all split it. The women claimed that they left the cult in November of 2017, right before Sydney's murder. Ugh. After one of the witnesses left the stand, Audrey tried slitting his throat in court. With he, what? I, a pencil? No, it was like the small blade that he had hidden. He was sitting in a wheelchair at the time. And I think he was able to hide it in like the metal of the wheelchair.
0: Oh, OK. It's like that one story that you did, mm-hmm. the Stauffer story, where the in the courtroom, the guy has a knife yeah, and Ming. tries to attack
1: the, the victim. But like, how are they getting all this stuff through, you, like past security? You would think they'd be pat down, but no. So he tries slitting his throat and he begins to yell, Bailey is innocent and I curse you all. He was not successful with his suicide attempt. Um, he was taken to the hospital and then later discharged. And I read somewhere that all during like a couple of weeks during this trial, he suffered from two heart attacks and a stroke.
0: Geez, this guy just can't die. He's like, yeah, I
1: know. Fucking cockroach. Well, he's a vampire. Oh well, that f- I forgot. <laughs> Only further proving, the defense eventually gave up on their attempts to paint the case as like kinks turned deadly. So Bailey's attorney focused largely on her traumatic childhood and attributed her role in Sydney's murder to emotional manipulation by Audrey. He was like more than double her age, so. They did that whole, that whole play. Yeah. During trial, Audrey claimed that his girlfriend Bailey brought Sydney home in hopes of recruiting her into his cult. He said that he killed Sydney because he was scared that she would go to the police and report them because of the lifestyle that they were living. But because of his multiple versions of events, we will never know the real story. Audrey confessed to strangling Sydney and was convicted of first degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, as well as improper disposal of human remains. He was sentenced to death. Even though Bailey was convicted of the same three crimes, she was given life in prison instead of death penalty. The judge didn't believe that she met the standard of exceptional depravity that was necessary to receive the death penalty. Bailey Boswell is currently serving her life sentence at Nebraska Correctional Center for Women while Audrey Trail is on death row at Tecumseh State Correctional Institution. And that is the horrifying murder case of Sidney Loof. That is beyond horrifying. Yeah, I... That whole dating app thing, man, it really freaks me out. Okay, so my hands have been sweating so yeah. much, and I have. There's a li- something you need to come clean with. <laughs> I have a little confession to make. Yeah, how did you meet your husband? Uh, I, well,
0: I uh, well, I definitely met him on a dating app, and maybe it was Tinder, maybe it wasn't, but it definitely was. And, um, as anybody who knows me knows,
1: shocking to me,
0: I plan. And I plan to a T, and I am paranoid about being murdered, mm-hmm. and I'm paranoid about being a victim of any type of crime that we cover on this show. You literally, have a file for people if you, if
1: you disappear.
0: Yeah, I met this guy on Tinder. Mm-hmm. He was so hot. We hit it off. We're risking like, it all. We t- <laughs> well, we talked for like a week, back and forth mm-hmm. constantly, and like he, j- everything about him seemed normal. I could see his Instagram. He, everything seemed to check out. And when he asked if I wanted to meet. At that point, I had never met someone off the app. Oh, okay. I had only like talked to people and just Mm -hmm. like had fun talking, but I never actually like arranged to meet anybody because I was too scared. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I had really hit it off with him and he was like, I live in Santa Monica. I live right on the beach and I have this great like rooftop like room that we Mm -hmm. can like reserve and hang out in. We can watch like a basketball game. We can order a pizza and I was like, okay, that sounds cool. I guess I'll do it. So even though this is so unlike me, I went to this guy's house, who I met off the internet. <laughs> I went to his apartment building. I went to the roof, on a roof, <laughs> the roof of this apartment building that was on the beach. Therefore, there is no one else around. It's an empty, deserted, dark beach. This is correct. And uh, I had I had done my homework, and I had established that, like, if I communicate with you know all my closest friends and mm-hmm. say this is when I'm arriving this is his number this is his name this is his address this is where we're gonna go into the building uh this is how long I expect to be here I'll check in with you after being there for you know like 30 minutes and then after that if you don't hear from me in the next hour then you need to call me and you like yeah. I, I agreed to like we we created a whole timeline of like I'm gonna check in at this time and then this time and then this yeah, time yeah
1: safety baby
0: so I did it I survived I ended up marrying the dude But I was also, I got so caught up in the date because we have hit it off even more in person. And we just talked not, like we didn't take a breath. Looking back, I didn't take a breath. He didn't contribute (laughs) whatsoever. (laughs) Yeah, he was listening the whole time, but he said he was like really tired and not feeling well, but he hadn't wanted to cancel the date. (laughs) Yeah. So he was, I just walked away from that night being like, that was the most incredible connection I've ever had. He's such an incredible listener. And then- you know time goes by and he was like i was actually so unwell that i just like asked Didn't you questions so that like i wouldn't have to talk and You're i was like i, like, I well, fell in
1: love with me that night well yeah <laughs> <laughs> i was like well and here
0: we are yeah <laughs> <laughs> but that's uh, that just listening to all of that it just gave me so much anxiety about something what that i happen? i felt good about it and i was like spontaneous and i did yeah. something that i would have never normally done and i even as i was going in i kept thinking this might be the only spontaneous thing I've ever done. And (laughs) will
1: ever do. Because he might murder me. (laughs) But I mean, the thing is, is it works out technically more times than it doesn't. But it doesn't enough that it's something to be scared of. Yeah. And when I think of the amount of profiles that people use my photos for. Oh, that's what's really scary. That's when I was like, I could never do this. Like I dating apps are not for me just because of the the fact that they're i mean i've probably been alerted of dating apps like a hundred times
0: yeah you've never been on one yet people take your in photos. my city people yeah. are taking my
1: photos and that Cat makes fishing. me think like what are people doing when they show up yeah who's waiting for them do they ever do it's it's there's too many possibilities i don't like it catfishing is scary and it's real yeah
0: well it's real and it's in its fakeness <laughs> yes um that was Really well done. I'm so impressed with how quickly you threw that together. Thanks, girl. So, you you
1: did a a good job telling that story. The story intrigued me, so it was really easy. Yeah. But, uh, anyways, thanks for your patience. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) Love you. (laughs) Love you. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram and TikTok at Shorties Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Annika Therina.